Welcome everyone to episode one of Jungian Ever After. I have with me the lovely Adina Davidson. How are you doing today? I am. I've had an entire day of technology today. So, um, but I am so excited to be really launching this. This is really a moment for me. So, yeah. How about you? How yeah, are you doing? I'm really excited to to dive in. You know, we've had this idea for a while, and we're we're finally gonna start breathing some life into it. Um, I'm of course uh, Raisa Cabrera. And we're going to be your guides in, in two different functions through the story that's going to be this podcast. So I will bring sort of a younger, more, I guess, contemporary take on these stories. And Adina will be providing, of course, the Jungian analysis. So going into this first story of Rapunzel, I know that for me... The, the main points I was familiar with were really just woman is isolated in a tower by a evil witch, theoretically evil, I guess, and has really long hair that she is forced to, to let down so the witch can come up, but is eventually saved by a Prince Charming who comes across her in the forest and the Disney version, Tangled, did an interesting spin on this story where instead of your prince, we have sort of a rascal type character actually comes and saves her from the tower. And she kind of comes into her own going on adventures with him until she has to confront the witch and who she did love as sort of a mother figure and not knowing that she was in fact a princess who had been stolen from her family as a child. So very different from the original version of the story, but of course adding sort of Disney's contemporary flair. So what were your sort of preconceptions going in from kind of a Jungian background? So, first of all, I, I, I want to say that we're probably always going to be talking a little bit about the Disney versions of the fairy tales, and I will almost never have seen those movies. So, as Raisa, as you just laid out that plot, I'm like, wow, even though this is so different than the Grimm, it really fits with a lot of core Jungian ideas, right? So... First of all, to start with, and I will probably repeat this many times during the course of the podcast because it's so easy to lose track of, but from a Jungian point of view, a fairy tale can be read as a collective dream. It's a dream for all of us, which means that there isn't a princess and a witch and a prince and parents. There are all different parts of psyche that are all interacting with each other. And what we get from listening to a fairy tale, from engaging with a fairy tale, is a sense of how psyche transforms. So I, I listened to this Disney fairy tale and I'm like, oh, they put a trickster character in. And of course, a trickster character for Jungians is a classic transformational character. They can be pretty terrible, they can be funny, they, they can be very, very difficult. But from a Jungian point of view, we need the trickster to change. Otherwise, we are very likely to stay stuck. Also, this connection to the witch as a sort of semi-mother figure is also very much, I think, true to Psyche that many of us have both faces of the mother in us, right? That we both have a sense of mother as a kind, warm, nurturing person. And many of us also have a sense of mother as 
dangerous, frightening, neglectful, ill-tempered, witchy. And, and probably how much of each of those you carry, how much of the archetype of the mother you tend to be conscious of, a lot to do with what your actual human parents were like. So that, that was the first thing that just struck me as I was like, wow, well, the, yes, the Disney has very little to do with Grimm, but really, really accessible f- for a Jungian take on it. Well, and of course, I know many people's relationship with their mother changes over the course of their lives. You may go from the position of an angsty teenager who feels that they really hate their mother, their mother's so constricting. But then as you grow into an adult, I know for me personally, my relationship with my mother has really improved over the years. And some of that may be changes with her, but a lot of it is just changes with myself. Again, to the Jungian point, that all of this is about the changes in our own psyches as much as our relationships with outer people. Um, yeah, and I would say the other movement is also pretty common, right? That we go from a very idealized view of our mothers to a much more disappointed sense of our mothers. And again, that internal imago, that internal image of the mother is going to change with, with all of that. And so I think that's one of the Jungian ways that Rapunzel can be viewed. The, probably the most predominant way that Rapunzel is viewed in the Jungian world is as a story of what really one of the most important Jungian analysts of the 20th, late 20th and 21st century, a man named Donald Kalshed, his take on Rapunzel. And Kalshed's take on Rapunzel is that when people have trauma, and of course we all have some amount of trauma, but when people have trauma, they develop what he calls archetypal defenses. They're very Mm. basic, primitive defenses that keep our tender, vulnerable self safe. And one of those very typical way to view Rapunzel is that Rapunzel is a symbol for that tender, vulnerable, innocent part of ourselves that no matter what exists in us and that the witch and the tower are two faces of that archetypal defense system. The witch is sort of the persecutor face, the the face that is so mean to our tender, vulnerable selves that they cower in, in a corner. And the tower itself is the protection, that wall that that we build up around our vulnerability. So that's probably, yeah, that's probably the way that most Jungians now, since Kalshed, are thinking about Rapunzel. And I I just want to give a quick shout out to his book because I'm really going to be relying on it a lot in this podcast. And it's called The Inner World of Trauma. If you find this interesting, I cannot recommend All right. Well, with that, let us dive into the story of Rapunzel as told by Grimm's Fairy Tales. Rapunzel from Household Tales by Brothers Grimm. There were once a man and a woman who had long in vain wished for a child. At length, the woman hoped that God was about to grant her desire. These people had a little window at the back of their house from which a splendid garden could be seen, which was full of the most beautiful flowers and herbs. It was, however, surrounded by a high wall, and no one dared to go into it because it belonged to an enchantress, who had great power and was dreaded by all the world. One day the woman was standing by this window and looking down into the garden, when she saw a bed which was planted with the most beautiful rampion, also called Rapunzel, 
and it looked so fresh and green that she longed for it and had the greatest desire to eat some. This desire increased every day, and as she knew that she could not get any of it, she was quite pined away and looked pale and miserable. Then her husband was alarmed and asked, What aileth thee, dear wife? Ah, she replied, if I can't get some of the rampion which is in the garden behind our house to eat, I shall die. The man who loved her thought, sooner than let thy wife die, bring her some of the rampion thyself. Let it cost thee what it will. In the twilight of the evening he clambered down over the wall into the garden of the enchantress, hastily clutched a handful of rampion, and took it to his wife. She at once made herself a salad of it, and ate it with much relish. She, however, liked it so much, so very much, that the next day she longed for it three times as much as before. If he was to have any rest, her husband must once more descend into the garden. In the gloom of evening, therefore, he let himself down again. But when he had clambered down the wall, he was terribly afraid, for he saw the enchantress standing before him. How canst thou dare, she said with angry look, to descend into my garden and steal my rampion like a thief? Thou shalt suffer for it. Ah, answered he, let mercy take the place of justice. I only made up my mind to do it out of necessity. My wife saw your rampion from the window and felt such a longing for it that she would have died if she had not got some to eat. Then the enchantress allowed her anger to be softened, and she said to him, If the case be as thou sayest, I will allow thee to take away with thee as much rampion as thou wilt. Only I make one condition. Thou must give me the child which thy wife will bring into the world. It shall be well treated, and I will care for it like a mother. The man, in his terror, consented to everything, and when the woman was brought to bed, the enchantress appeared at once, gave the child the name of Rapunzel, and took it away with her. Rapunzel grew into the most beautiful child beneath the sun. When she was twelve years old, the enchantress shut her into a tower, which lay in a forest and had neither stairs nor door, but quite at the top was a little window. When the enchantress wanted to go in, she placed herself beneath it and cried, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down thy hair to me. Rapunzel had magnificent long hair, fine as spun gold, and when she heard the voice of the enchantress, she unfastened her braided tresses, wound them round one of the hooks of the window above, and then the hair fell twenty ells down, and the enchantress climbed up by it. After a year or two, it came to pass that the king's son rode through the forest and went by the tower. Then he heard a song, which was so charming that he stood still and listened. This was Rapunzel, who in her solitude passed her time in letting her sweet voice resound. The king's son wanted to climb up to her and looked for the door of the tower, but none was to be found. He rode home, but the singing had so deeply touched his heart that every day he went out into the forest and listened to it. Once when he was thus standing behind a tree, he saw that an enchantress came there, and he heard how she cried, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down thy hair. Then Rapunzel let down the braids of her hair, and the enchantress climbed up to her. If that is the ladder by which one mounts, I will for once try my fortune, said he. And the next day, when it began to grow dark, he went to the tower and cried, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down thy hair. Immediately the hair fell down, and the king's son climbed up. At first Rapunzel was terribly frightened when a man such as her eyes had never yet beheld came to her. But the king's son began to talk to her quite like a friend, and told her that his heart had been so stirred that it had let him have no rest, and he had been forced to see her. Then Rapunzel lost her fear, and when he asked her if she would take him for her husband, and she saw that he was young and handsome, she thought, 
he will love me more than old Dame Gotel does. And she said yes, and laid her hand in his. She said, I will willingly go away with thee, but I do not know how to get down. Bring with thee a skein of silk every time that thou comest, and I will weave a ladder with it. And when that is finally ready, I will descend, and thou wilt take me on thy horse. They agreed that until that time he should come over to her every evening, for the old woman came by day. The enchantress remarked nothing of this, until once Rapunzel said to her, Tell me, Dame Gotel, how it happens that you are so much heavier for me to draw up than the young kin's son. He is with me in a moment. Ah, thou wicked child, cried the enchantress. What do I hear thee say? I thought I had separated thee from all the world, and yet thou hast deceived me. In her anger she clutched Rapunzel's beautiful tresses, wrapped them twice round her left hand, seized a pair of scissors with the right, and snip-snap they were cut off, and the lovely braids lay upon the ground. And she was so pitiless that she took poor Rapunzel into a desert where she had to live in grief and misery. On the same day, however, that she cast out Rapunzel, the enchantress in the evening fastened the braids of her hair, which she had cut off, to the hook of the window, and when the king's son came and cried, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down thy hair, she let the hair down. The king's son ascended, but he did not find his dearest Rapunzel above, but the enchantress, who gazed at him with wicked and venomous looks. Aha! she cried mockingly. Thou wouldst fetch thy dearest, but the beautiful bird sits no longer singing in the nest. The cat has got it, and will scratch out thy eyes as well. Rapunzel is lost to thee, thou wilt never see her more. The king's son was beside himself with pain, and in his despair he leapt down from the tower. He escaped with his life, but the thorns into which he fell pierced his eyes. Then he wandered quite blind about the forest, ate nothing but roots and berries, and did nothing but lament and weep over the loss of his dearest wife. Thus he roamed about in misery for some years, and at length came to the desert where Rapunzel, with the twins to which she had given birth, a boy and a girl, lived in wretchedness. He heard a voice, and it seemed so familiar to him that he went towards it, and when he approached, Rapunzel knew him and fell on his neck and wept. Two of her tears wetted his eyes, and they grew clear again, and he could see with them as before. He led her to his kingdom, where he was joyfully received, and they lived for a long time afterwards, happy and contented. So, I hope you all enjoyed that reading of Rapunzel. We're going to dive into the analysis now. So, you mentioned some things leading in, but why don't we start off breaking down piece by piece the various parts of the story. So, we have a man and a woman who would love to have a child, but can't seem to make it happen. So, let's just start right there. Again, we're taking that perspective that the man and the woman and the wished-for child are all symbols for different parts of psyche, right? So traditionally in Jungian analysis, male and female are viewed as opposites. And when they come together in a conjunctio or in a marriage in a fairy tale, that is a coming together of the opposites. And the psychological goal of that coming together of the opposites is the birth of something new. So right away, we see, okay, we've had this marriage, but there hasn't, for some reason, that it has not resulted in the birth of something new. And there's that yearning for something new to come into the world. And again, I think that that's a feeling that we can all resonate. I am ready. I've done all of the work. And there still isn't anything new. I'm still waiting. I'm still not as fully alive as I want to be. Something that kind of surprised me was 
she yearns for this rampion even before she's pregnant. I had thought that this was going to be intended as like a craving, a, a pregnancy craving. But she actually, she yearns for the rampion from the witch's garden before she's pregnant and then again after she's pregnant. So what's kind of the explanation with, with that? So I think there's a couple of different possibilities and it really depends on how we view this symbol of psyche, right? So if we're viewing it through kind of the positive end, we'd say this is our part of psyche that craves necessary nourishment and mm. will not be satisfied until we get that nourishment. If we view that aspect of psyche through a different lens, or perhaps it's just different ends of the same archetype, right? A dark face and a bright face. Mm -hmm. It's greed. It's we're never satisfied. We never have enough. And I think in the Rapunzel story, the willingness of the wife, the mother, to put every other aspect of psyche in danger to get the rampion says probably we're looking at more of the dark face of this. We're looking more at the times where our normal, natural, instinctual yearnings have become obsessive. Mm. And they can no longer kind of connect to the reasonable, rational parts of our, our mind. And they're they just don't care anymore about consequences. They want what they want, and they want it right now. And maybe perhaps a bit of grass is always greener kind of thing as well. You know, she's looking outside her window at this garden that belongs to someone else. And we all have a partner, I think, or a family member who says, oh, it tastes better when I take it off your plate. <laughs> mm. <laughs> We certainly do in my family. That one would be me. That would be the, the <laughs> Adina partner in my in my family. Uh -huh. Yeah, but I think I, I actually think that sense that other people always have it better, mm -hmm. or something I don't have is better, actually really is part of that sort of obsessive takeover of a natural instinct, right? Sure. I mean, I think we can really see how badly it's going for our society if we think about, yes, it's a completely natural, normal human instinct to have a little more than what we have now. But in our current situation, that incessant drive to have more and more and more and more is part of what's really endangering our whole planet, I think. Yeah. And it certainly goes to an even darker place when the husband goes out into the garden. First time, it's fine. He makes it back okay. And then the second time, the witch is waiting for him. Perhaps the implication is she knows she'd been stolen from before. So this time, she's on guard. And in his sort of bluster at being caught, he's willing to take on any cost, even... One so great as the child that they've been waiting for all this time. And this really is an enormously dark archetypal pattern. I think we see this tale of fathers sacrificing their children to benefit themselves in so many myths and fairy tales and biblical stories, Agamemnon, the great Greek war king, sacrifices his daughter Iphigenia so that he can get a good wind to go fight in Troy. It doesn't end very well for Agamemnon. Iphigenia's mother is waiting for him when he gets back and kills him in his bath, but he has no compunction 
about sacrificing her for his own political needs. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we can all think of lots of examples, both in fairy tales and myths. I'm not going to go into that too much. But I think that this really symbolizes how narcissism in parents, and I would say both in mothers and fathers, this is not a, in, in fairy tales and myths, it tends to be a, the masculine who is willing to sacrifice the child. But I think in actual lived experience, it's narcissism in the parents. And again, it's always to some degree happening in all families. But when it becomes a dominant characteristic of one or both parents, when their needs come before the child's needs, that child really is a sacrifice. Mm. That that child doesn't ever get to develop into the person they're supposed to be, or at least not until they can get away from that home and perhaps do that work in a much more difficult way as an adult. At its most extreme, I think we see this in sexual abuse, right? Where sure. a parent uses the child both physically, emotionally, and spiritually for their own needs and really causes untold damage. But again, I think it happens in subtler but extremely damaging ways all the time. Right. Well, and in this story, I think part of what's interesting is the witch comes and takes Rapunzel away, and it's kind of fine initially, at least where Rapunzel is concerned. You know, she is raised by the witch. She doesn't realize that the witch is, is not her caretaker or mother. She sees so little of the world that she doesn't actually know what she's missing necessarily. This is something that they kind of adjusted in the Disney Tangled. She yearns for the outside world and wants to go see the lanterns that she always sees on her birthday. Mm. But in the Grimm fairy tale, I don't think she's really that concerned necessarily being in the tower. She's sort of no, she's fine. Just living her life. Yeah. And I think this is really a story that talks about how that protector-persecutor complex that I talked about before we read the story, how it's developed, right? If a child is born to narcissistic parents, that child is going to need to develop very powerful, very early defenses to emotionally survive. A child who is being used for the needs of their parents is a child who is at risk of annihilation. Mm -hmm. And so the protective face of the protector-persecutor complex really swoops in. And through building a wall around that child, around that innocent, vulnerable part of the self, really protects the child. If any of you have been kind of dissociated at all, that's how it feels like. You're just in this calm, quiet, walled-off space. And you're not in touch with external reality. I mean, that's, that's the price, right? Is that you lose touch with external reality. But you're not frightened. You're not overwhelmed. You're not, you're not much of anything. You're just in mm -hmm. this sort of tower. <laughs> I have one quick correction. I didn't realize that she she doesn't grow up in the tower. She's put in the tower at 12. So that may contribute to some of the happy early childhood. But it really kind of time skips to that. And I could imagine her growing up, okay, maybe not in a tower as such, but isolated from other people. It seems the witch is really the only force 
in her life. And then she hits puberty, put in the tower. Right. I don't think that the fairy tale is particularly interested in her relationship with her parents. Right. That's not... The interesting thing is this willingness to sacrifice her and then what the witch does with that willingness. Right. So, yeah. So the other thing that I would say is that this vulnerable, pure soul part of psyche is often imaged in our individual dreams as a child. Mm. And almost always imaged in fairy tales as a child. Sure. Yeah. A childlike innocence, right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we are, again, we all know that. We kind of know that intuitively, that young children are both the purest and the most vulnerable expressions of ourselves. Well, and certainly once tarnished, children can be brought to perhaps even darker places than adults sometimes because of that imagination and loss of innocence. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, right? Again, because they're unprotected, that their rawest negative stuff is also right there, right available to them. Mm-hmm. So if we figure... Everyone has a tower like this. What what do our towers look like in terms of psyche? Right. So I think the first thing that comes to mind is that sort of numbness. When we just feel numb or I've seen a lot of articles and YouTube yoga videos on being dead inside. Mm. right feel dead inside and i think that when we feel dead inside we're not in pain anymore we are really fully in the tower another i think less engulfing way we experience the tower is kind of unrealistic daydreams or fantasies of what our life might look like yeah, just I'm going to get that perfect job without ever having to apply for it. <laughs> the one that I see in my consulting room all the time is I want to meet my life partner, but oh no, I don't want to go on any dating app at all because then I'm going to have to meet all of these people that I might like or who might not like me. Sure. Yeah, so there's kind of unrealistic That's another form of the tower. It's another form of keeping our, again, purest part of ourself separate from that kind of world that might hurt us, right? So we stay safe, but we also don't fully engage in life. Yeah. I'm watching an anime right now called Komi Can't Communicate. And it's really a story of social anxiety, of Mm. this girl is stunning and very popular because of that. It's the first day of school and everyone's kind of fawning over her. But one of the characters realizes she can't talk to people. She has such crippling anxiety. And eventually they have a conversation on the chalkboard, just writing back and forth. Mm. And she sort of explains how like, she has this goal to make 100 friends. She really wants to talk to people, but she can't even talk about the weather. She can't even make small talk. And yeah, it's very much that it's safer to kind of run away and not say anything and you know be this mystery, but she doesn't get to fully experience life. Relationship. Be- exactly. Having friends, even though she wants them. That's so interesting and such an example of the ways archetypal stories get told and retold because that's that's totally a Rapunzel story, right? I am walled off and safe and I will not reach out to have relationships 
oh, but I want them so badly. So Comey's version of letting down her hair is to write on the chalkboard. Mm -hmm. Because actually, in the end, both for Rapunzel and for Comey and for me, that isolation, that numbness becomes unbearable. Sure. All of our instinctual drive to live is fighting against the tower, the witch, which I think, again, is interesting when we look at the Rapunzel story, because if you think of an instinctual desire to live from a Freudian point of view, that's sex. Mm. From a Jungian point of view, sex is one of the expressions of it. And in the Rapunzel story, she gets walled off at the point where she would begin to become a sexual person, right? Mm -hmm. At 12. And the thing that frees her is, I mean, they never say the word sex in the <laughs> fairy tale, but is a, an erotic, romantic, love, presumably physical relationship with someone else. So that sexuality really is a powerful drive against the protector-persecutor complex for many people. And she comes to a realization at one point, he will love me more than old Dame Gotel does. Gotel, of course, being the witch. Right. And it's a tower with no way in or out, no stairs, no door. But she makes a way out with, with her hair. And we all, right, need to break out of our own towers. You can't exactly have someone help you through it. Someone can support you or, or sort of bring you to realizations the way that the prince does here. But she has to get herself out. In this case, the way she actually gets out is a bit unfortunate. It is, in fact, the protector banishing her. The hair let her sort of get the support and experience the outside world. But as you say, implied sex, there is a child, right? But that doesn't happen until the witch has banished Rapunzel. So what is to be understood from that, where Rapunzel doesn't make a poly or anything. She doesn't find a nice way out of the tower. The only way she gets out is through the witch sending her to this desert. So I guess I would actually even back it up a little bit and say the first initial pathway out of the tower or connection to an outer world is her hair, right? And that Again, hair is often symbolic of sexuality. But I also think, you know, if, if you imagine how painful it is to have somebody climb up your hair, that's actually, I think, very um, true of how painful it is to reach outside of the safety of our tower. Mm. It is agonizing, especially for people with with tremendous early trauma, right? Where this protector-persecutor complex is the dominant part of psyche, not just one of one of the parts of psyche, which it is for all of us, but really one of the, the like front and center. Reaching out for relationship or even allowing relationship, they, we all want that so badly and it hurts. Right. If, for people who've had lots of early trauma or severe early trauma, being loved hurts. And maybe it hurts for all of us. So I think that this, again, this image of the hair is a really good one for that. So, and, and also that, that we don't grow our hair on purpose. Hmm. Hair just grows. And, and I think that that's also true of some of the ways that psych, some of the ways psyche develops, we do work and it, it happens. But some of it, it just sort of seems to emerge. 
And there mm-hmm. it is. And again, I think we often see that in fairy tales, that the helpers are just there. And in Rapunzel's case, the hair is just there. She didn't have to do anything. She just had, it just came. Now, she had to figure out how to use it. And that's where what I would call ego, the reality, the part of ourselves, becomes so important. Psyche can give us what we need, but the conscious part of ourselves has to figure out how to use it. Although it seems perhaps... Actually, the witch kind of comes up with how to use it, you know, coming around and saying, Rapunzel, let down your hair. Again, the witch is part of, it's all all part of us. Right, of course. (laughs) So it's interesting, though, that the idea comes from that persecutor, protector part of ourselves. But I guess that image of that complex she, it, that part of ourselves, believed that Rapunzel would only use it to connect to the witch. And right. it never occurred to the witch that Rapunzel would use it to connect to a broader world. But yeah, I mean, we, it also, like, again, as I think about how we develop as human beings, we never know when something that is necessary for our development, we never know where it's going to come from. It can come from the darkest places in us sometimes. Uh, And you had a question and I totally lost it. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's fine. So proceeding through the story, the king's son, as it says, the prince, we'll call him. The prince comes by uh, and he hears this beautiful song, comes across the tower, can't get in until he observes the witch calling out Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair. And he does the same thing. One could imagine she could tell the difference between the voices, but she let her hair down for him all the same. And initially she's afraid, but then she's grateful to have this friend, and he asks if she will take him for a husband. Again, I think it's interesting that it's singing, right? Mm. Because I think that in this particular fairy tale, singing functions as a symbol for creativity, right? Mm. How we take something that's formless but beautiful in our unconscious and transform it into something that can communicate with somebody else. And I think the fact that Rapunzel uses her singing to pass the time, to endure her loneliness, is very true for a lot of my analysis, right? They use their creative process as a tool to endure all of the hard things that they are enduring. And that the first step in that is that she does it all by herself, right? She does, nobody lists, she doesn't sing for the witch. She doesn't sing for her parents, who are presumably not that far away from the tower, she just sings by herself. And I think that's also very typical of how we begin to grow past the protector-persecutor complexes control over us, right? We begin by having some kind of a creative process, but we don't let anybody see it. Right. And then we maybe take that huge, huge, huge risk of letting it connect to another human being. And when somebody else receives our creativity, when they interact with our creativity, when it it stops being a solo project and becomes a dance, that's a point where the tower really weakens its hold. Mm. And I think that that's, that's what we're seeing in, in the Rapunzel story. And I could give some clinical examples, but I'm feeling like maybe we should keep moving through the story. <laughs> well, certainly, I mean, not just creativity, but also opening yourself up to love another person opens opens yourself up to being hurt by them. There's all kinds of stories where 
there's a character who is totally done. They've forsaken any love because they don't want to be hurt again. Right. And in the Rapunzel story, it isn't the person or the part of Psyche that Rapunzel loves that hurts her. But love does lead to terrible pain. Right. The persecutor-protector complex comes back with a vengeance. Rapunzel, you know, reaches out, connects with her beloved, and, and as soon as that happens, the witch says, oh no, you will go into an even deeper and more thorough and painful isolation than the one you've been in. And again, I think that's very true for what I see in my clinical work, that, Mm. you know, you have somebody who's been in this very isolated, closed off, closed off emotionally, often state, and they take a first risk. They connect to me as their analyst, or they connect to somebody who might be a romantic partner, or they take a class, any of those things. And just like the witch, the protector-persecutor complex comes back and tells them how worthless they are, how foolish they are, how incompetent they are, how, you know, just really tortures them almost back into isolation. Mm. And I find that we have to go through this agonizing oscillation between taking that risk and having the persecutor protector come in and attack the soul back into the tower. To go through that oscillation over and over and over again before the witch loses their power. Right. So following along the story again, we've got Rapunzel comes up with this plan to bring Silk and weave a ladder. You mentioned she goes to an even worse place because she makes this mistake. She says to the witch, completely not thinking, why are you heavier than the prince? Which is actually very curious because one would expect an older woman like the witch would not weigh more than the prince. And I think that's actually pretty subtle kind of detail Mm -hmm. that you focus on the mistake, which is to mention the prince. And I completely forgot that the question even was this other bizarre thing, which is the witch being heavier than the prince. Do you have any insights on on that? You know, first of all, I think the mistake, I'm going to go back to the Disney I can't even remember the name of the Disney movie. Tangled. Tangled, thank you. I'm going to go back to that where the agent of change is the trickster. Mm. In this, the trickster is the mistake. Like nothing really is going to change until Rapunzel makes this mistake. And I think that that kind of trickstery quality, oh my goodness, what did, what was I what, what what was I doing? How is often Psyche's way of kicking us into the next stage of development. Uh, and it and can be very unpleasant, right? Like Rapunzel. She had to leave the tower, but ugh, going to the desert. Wish that wasn't the way she had to leave it. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> wait, I lost your question again. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, ju- just that, you know, so she's on the the eve of getting out Oh, why is the witch heavier than the prince? Mm-hmm. I mean, at, at one level, that seems so obvious, right? The parts of our psyche that torture us weigh really heavily on us. And the parts of our psyche that bring us joy 
our capacity for love, our capacity for intimacy, our capacity to appreciate our own creativity feel light as a feather. Mm. So it may be as simple as that. Um, you mean it's not that the witch is some kind of shapeshifter and she just, you know, weighs more in a smaller body? We don't. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's possible too, right? I think that would be sort of the uh, once upon a time version or explanation of why the witch would be heavier. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. And that's a, a beautiful image and a terrifying image, right? Of something that's very, very, very enormous and heavy but somehow is, can be perceived as something tiny and frail and light. What a, what a danger that is. And again, actually, probably, if you think about psyche, makes sense, right? Things in us that are really dangerous to us often are perceived as no big deal. In fact, I think that's something that we say about trauma often. Oh, wasn't that bad? Mm. Yeah. Isn't such a big deal. At some point, I need to get you to watch this uh, different anime called Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. Oh. Got an alchemy element. Full Metal know. Alchemist. That is a hysterical title. <laughs> it, it, you know, translations, whatever. Yeah. But they are fighting against these homunculi who each embody a different of the seven deadly sins. And mm. I kind of thought of that shapeshifter thing because one of them, Envy takes the form of this kind of non-binary, maybe slightly feminine, young individual, but they have this weird realization that it must have another form because when they engage with it, it's so heavy. You, you see it, the tracks and marks it makes in the mud mm. are the weight of something far, right. far bigger. Right, right, right. And of course, when you see its true form, it's this ghastly monster, an amalgamation of all kinds of different people. I would love to see that. And that's an interesting little foreshadowing of our next fairy tale, Cinderella, <laughs> which I'm going to argue is at least partially a tale of envy. Oh, I think it's perhaps more than partial. It plays a rather large role. But back to Rapunzel. <laughs> so we're in the desert, even more isolated and desolate. And she's supposed to live here in grief and misery. The witch has made it clear that she thought she had separated her from all the world. Now she's sought to kind of do that in a more final way, even separate from herself, which no longer even close to Rapunzel, and she waits in the tower for the prince to come up, who is completely unsuspecting, you know, thinking he's going to find Rapunzel, and he's brought the silk, and is gonna go down, and they have this confrontation in which he, in his desperation to get out of the tower now and flee from the witch, falls into a patch of briars and his eyes are scratched out. So there's a lot of pieces going on there. Can, can you walk us through it? Yeah, so, so he is innocently but really foolishly, jauntily going back up to the tower. He knows the witch exists and he knows how harsh she can be. And yet he takes no precautions at all. Hmm. And again, I think this has a bright face and a dark face. The bright face is that we sort of need that foolish innocence to take risks, right? Or maybe we wouldn't take them on the one hand. But on the other hand, it really is sort of the, the blindness that we often go into dangerous situations for ourselves, right? We, you know, we're like, eh, I'll be fine. It'll be fine without being particularly honest and clear-eyed, right? So it's interesting that the consequence mm. for his 
almost deliberate blindness, right? <laughs> is that he is actually blinded. I mean, I would argue that the consequence for that kind of foolish blindness is almost always pretty severe, right? There is just sort of this natural consequences that come when we don't realistically assess situations. In this case, the consequence forces him to physically live out what he had been psychologically doing. And it could be that there's something about physically living it out that allows him to get the experience that he needed to grow that more adult caution, right? If you think of the sort of peak of this, I'll be fine, it, it's kind of adolescence, right? And we get pretty banged up generally as we become emotionally, many of us physically, we, we get banged up as we grow up which then allows us to be more cautious. And I would argue also allows us to create that protective circle that if we have children, our children need. An incautious parent is a pretty scary parent. <laughs> so that again, I think you can see this process of taking this foolish risk, paying a price, falling into those painful, painful brambles, being blinded, living blinded, all is sort of a necessary preparation for being a more functional adult. Does that make sense? Does that? Yeah. Well, and, you know, the blindness ultimately does get healed. First, he has to wander around like that for years until he finally finds Rapunzel again, who has had twins, and her tears heal the prince's eyes. So again, this is a bit of a foreshadowing for our next fairy tale, but it's also just a theme in fairy tales, and I think very much a theme in psyche. Honestly felt grief heals. Mm. When we can really weep, when we can really grieve our losses, that's the place where something new can come in, where we no longer just wander endlessly, but we begin to move along that path of individuation. We begin to become more of ourselves. And as long as we avoid the grief, we can't, we can't grow, we can't change. And fairy tales really honor grief. Hmm. It really, over and over again in fairy tales, it's where the something new comes out of. It comes out of tears. And it's interesting that, so his eyes grow clear again, and he leads her back to his kingdom, where they're joyfully received, you know, those couple of years, whatever, it's fine. And they live for a long time afterwards, happy and contented. Rapunzel's parents, they don't get a happy ending. Right. Well, you know, Rapunzel really is an example of narcissistic parents, right? Her mother did not care at all what the consequences to her husband would be of getting that rampion. Again, they all knew this witch was there, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody was surprised that there was a witch. No one didn't know that the witch owned the rampion. Mm -hmm. The wife, the mother, Rapunzel's mother, just didn't care at all that she was putting her husband in mortal danger. And Rapunzel's father, as we've already talked about, was completely willing to give up his baby to save himself. Which is right. the exact opposite of what we hope a parent will do. I mean, just exactly right. the opposite. And honestly, it's interesting to me how often it comes up 
in myth and fairy tale that the parent does do that because I think in actual waking life, the instinct to protect our children is very powerful. Mm. But I guess the, the other pattern must be very powerful too. So in any case, I don't think that when narcissism is untouched, that there's much capacity for real joy, right? I think in fairy tales and in life, joy comes out of meaningful connection to deep parts of ourselves and meaningful connection to other people and meaningful connection to creative process, to work. That's where real joy comes from. And narcissism actually doesn't allow for any of that. It closes the door to really knowing oneself because narcissists can't look too much at themselves because they'd be ashamed and they can't tolerate shame. Obviously, they can't connect easily to other people because they don't really see other people as fully human. And the work that they tend to produce is usually pretty superficial. So they can be very successful. I mean, we all know extremely successful narcissists in the world. But I don't think they very often produce work that's of lasting meaning. Mm. Yeah. So you could kind of argue that Rapunzel's parents couldn't have a happy ending really, because of either who they are or what they represent in psyche, which are those untouched narcissistic places, the narcissistic places that don't develop, that don't get softened. And if you think about narcissists that you know, or you think about your own narcissistic places, they're pretty unhappy people or unhappy places. In <laughs> I also think it's really interesting. Fairy tales never imply immortality right? It's always, they live to an old age. They, there's always sort of this sense of this sort of natural flow of life. Hmm. That there's, there's hard times and there's joyful times. And if we're lucky, there's this sort of peaceful end. And I, I really like that about yeah, there's a story that we, we may get to at some point that is told in Greek mythology. And also, I think there's a grim version of the couple who takes in the travelers not knowing that they're mm -hmm. powerful beings in some capacity. Mm -hmm. And the happy ending there is not that they're rewarded necessarily with immortality, but that they die at the same moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These two people who are so in love. Well... That basically wraps it up for Rapunzel. Do you have any final words or do you want to give sort of a preview of what's to come? So I, I do want to once again really honor my teachers and particularly my teacher Donald Kalshed in my understanding of this fairy tale. So next time we're going to be looking at Cinderella and I'm going to also be honoring some great analysts. There's an analyst named Anne Yulinoff who really approached Cinderella as a tale of envy. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to, we're going to talk a lot about that and what envy does to us. I also very much see Cinderella as what heartfelt grief allows as well. So, mm. yeah, more fun with Grimm's fairy tales, envy and grief. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine there will be a lot of those. <laughs> you know, as you and I talked about when we did, Grimm's fairy tales are very dark. They're, they're, oh. It's always interesting to think about them as children's stories. But I think the thing to remember is that children have all of the same darkness that adults do. And that I think these stories are for really for all ages because they allow us to, to see those places in ourselves 
in a meaningful way. Mm. Which is what we do when we tell stories. And when we analyze them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that is it for Rapunzel. Our intro-outro music is a sample of Spring Movement 1 Allegro from The Four Seasons, composed by Antonio Vivaldi and performed by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players. You can find the full version at freemusicarchive.org, link in the show notes. And if you like what you've been hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast feed of choice, as it really helps other people find the show. This show will always be free and available to all, but if you would like to monetarily support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash jungianeverafter. Also, Dr. Adina Davidson is a certified Jungian analyst who offers telesessions. You can find out more about her practice at adinadavidson.com or her Psychology Today profile. We'll be with you again next month, but until then, we hope your month is filled with exploring the worlds of imagination and storytelling. Mm-hmm.